mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. This is the Square Peg Podcast. United States media, particularly movies and television, have long portrayed a particular image of American culture to the world, and that image for much of the 50s and 60s was that of the cowboy. While the popularity of westerns on TV and theaters has waned a bit over the years, there's been quite a resurgence in the last few with the smash Paramount hit Yellowstone. While those of us in the Southwest, even people like me who might just barely brush up against cowboy culture, tend to have somewhat of an understanding of what the culture is like, the average American and our neighbors around the world only have a view into what the what they into that world through what they see in the media. My guest today has spent decades in the cattle ranching lifestyle and is currently the president of the New Mexico Cattle Growers Association. Lauren Patterson, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Well, thank you for having me today. I'm glad we finally get to do this. I know we've talked a few times uh, on the phone. What what brought you down here uh, to so Las Cruces today? Today I had a meeting with the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. Uh, scheduled commissioner meeting that where they went over the uh, elk rule for the next four years and so I represented my association there at that meeting today. Okay so that's interesting what would the cattle growers association what would they need to know or have an interest in the elk issue? So obviously the elk share the rangeland with cattle and uh, 53% of New Mexico's Elk reside on private property, and that's many of my association's members. So we, we're always concerned with hunting and, and land use. And Okay, so the elk are not a concern. They're not a danger to the cattle, but it's the, the hunting of the elk that can create. Well, they, and then not a danger per se. Uh, they share uh, natural resources with us. They utilize our water. They utilize our, our grazing, right? Um, so we have, uh, if there's too many elk on the ra- the land, obviously there has to be less cattle, vice versa. Uh, so we, we have a lot of give and take in the use of the natural resources. Okay. And then you touched on something that we're definitely going to get to a little bit later. I actually, my family, we go to Rio Doso quite a bit and it wasn't until, about, I think two years ago that we actually went there in the summer and this probably has something to do with it. I had never seen an elk before. I'm not a hunter. And I was just amazed at how big they are. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're they're huge. They you know the uh, a full sized elk is is probably eight hundred pounds. The size of, almost of a horse. Well, yeah, uh, you Quarter know horse, our maybe. our cattle usually uh, grown mature cows running at eleven hundred to twelve hundred pounds, and so they're two thirds or three fourths of a full grown cow. Well, that it was actually, and the reason it was it seemed like such a stark, starch contrast to me to the deer we see up there, which they'll come up to your 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 cabin and you can feed them, is the deer here are so tiny compared to the deer I grew up with in the East Coast. The ones that would come and still up until a couple of years ago, before my parents sold their house, would come eat my dad's tomato plants were gigantic <laughs> compared to the ones you see here. And I don't, again, I don't really know much about that stuff. I don't know what type of deer they are, but so I'm used to. By comparison, the deer here are so small, and then I see the the elk, and it's just, I mean, it almost looks like a small horse. Yeah. No, the the elk are definitely a a, a large land beast. So, <laughs> And I've eaten elk before. Not bad. No, Not they're bad. very good eating. You know, they're they're a great part of our natural resource in the state, and and uh, 
but we we share it. So now, because of your position, do you have any? Is there any? Does that affect your ability to to put in for hunting tags or? No, as a matter of fact, uh, because I have private land in elk habitat, uh, I can actually uh, sell some tag authorizations to. Oh wow! Okay. To I usually sell them to an outfitter so that he can be insured and all that, and I can carry on with my ranching, and he can do his job. So there you go. Now, actually, uh, it, it occurred to me, you just told me you guys had a minor and this almost sounds too, I don't want to use the word cliche, but too perfect. You'd had a minor family pet emergency. Yeah. So week. two nights ago, uh, of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of border collies. Uh, they, they fit me and I fit them and I like a smart dog and, and yeah, my border collie, my female got bit, uh, by a rattlesnake at uh, about seven thirty at night. And so, so that was a long night. <laughs> so, and do you find a vet? Do you have a vet that works for you? Oh, I have a vet uh, nearby, but of course, when we talk about nearby, that's two and a half hours. So, oh you know, uh, so I keep uh, usually emergency medicine on hand for for snake bites. It's pretty common in horses and dogs, and so so I can usually give them their first response, but but it. You know, with a snake bite, you always worry about them whether they can breathe or not, especially on the nose like that one was. And well, so it's interesting. You were talking. You're talking about dogs and horses. We're talking about two very different sized animals, right? I would. I would almost wonder if if uh, I wonder why it might even be an issue for a horse, an animal that big. Oh, they they usually get bit right on the end of the nose. A horse does, and uh, the swelling can, the swelling can suffocate them. I'll tell you what, I've lived in New Mexico here since 1998, and I don't spend a ton of time outside. I might have told you, I, I like nature, but I, I like it best from the window of the car I'm driving in. <laughs> um, it was not until two or three summers ago I saw my first live rattlesnake. We were out at night doing our night rifle qualifications, our last string of fire from the 100, prone, and they were just about to call it, and our chaplain was right next to me. He said, watch out. I was about to lay down right on a rattlesnake. Yeah. Nope. They and, can be anywhere. And I'm I'm not necessarily a man of faith, but I've never been so happy to have a chaplain right next to me. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I have to ask, how many different definitions could you think of for the word cowboy? Oh, there's there's uh, quite a few, and especially as you go outside of the country. But but obviously the, the first one comes to mind is vaquero. You know, we're in this desert southwest, and... Uh, so the vaquero word comes from the word vaca in Spanish, and and uh, obviously it means cowboy, and that's what that's how it started here in America. And uh, you know the Spanish miss- missions brought in cattle out of Mexico and now off of Spain, and uh, and taught the Indians how to herd on on horseback, and we've been doing it ever since. And so, well, I guess I mean you know sometimes you'll hear people refer to. Just anybody who work uh, a ranch hand as a cowboy, oh, yeah. or yep. somebody who um, owns horses. Uh, I'll tell you my little story. When I moved here to New Mexico, uh, I was living in Silver City, and I knew a guy in my class uh, who's from Socorro, and he always wore boots and a hat. So I nicknamed him Cowboy. He did not do anything in his life involving horses or cattle or working on a ranch, but to me, being from right outside of Washington D.C., that was a cowboy. You know. Um, I don't want to mention that football team because you know, I'm a fan of their rivals. But um, no, I, I think that that's you know, like I said, we everybody has a different kind of different definition about what you know what constitutes a cowboy. And for me, coming from outside of the Southwest and not not being really exposed to the 
to the Western or, or you know, cowboy lifestyle, that, that was a cowboy, just somebody who wore the clothing. Well, there's lots of <clears throat> definitions to a word, I guess, but uh, it's 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 definitely a word that's hard to live up to by the people who actually do it. So I don't, you know what? I think that's probably the best. You couldn't have said it any better, actually. <laughs> have you have you actually strung that those words together? No, I haven't. Just, no, that's that was actually pretty pretty spot on. I don't think it could have been explained any any better. Now, of course, you didn't just learn how to how to raise cattle. Uh, and to to bring them to market on the job, you do have formal. You have a, a, both bachelor's and master's degrees in animal science. Absolutely. Uh, so, my grandfather, when he came to New Mexico during the Depression, he was fourteen. He left home at a fairly young age, had an eighth grade education, but education was very important to him. All of his kids got either a college education, and one went on to be a, a veterinarian. Um, and pretty much all of his grandchildren have uh, had a strong education background. Um, many of them are teachers. We have a doctor. We have a couple of nurses. We uh, have myself. You know, I have a master's. But, uh, you know, he, he, I remember him telling me uh, when I was uh, thinking about going to college, and he said, uh, he said, an education will never get in your way unless you let it. And... Uh, so it, we've always we've always made it an emphasis to do that, and I think it's because he never had that opportunity. Well, that's you know that's a familiar story for a lot of people. Um, how did you decide on animal science? Well, obviously, I you know raised on a ranch and being around cattle all my life, um, animal science just made sense. Now my my masters had a strong influence in ag economics, also. And so if you're going to make a business out of it, you better learn the business. And That makes sense. And as, as you were starting to talk about that, I did have the thought. When I first moved here to Las Cruces, I actually worked for New Mexico State University. And for our listeners who don't live around here, it is the agricultural university here. Um, they've got um, a big, the big, the Gerald Thomas building there is huge. And, and I have met people and talked to people that I may not have, things that I may not have thought of before I moved out here, but I met people who, who majored in Ag econ, ag econ, agricultural economy, and there's probably you could probably list twenty different types of majors that are related to the farming and or ranching, uh, you know, businesses or lifestyle or or or, or what have you. But um, did you ever, given that you studied animal science, did you ever consider veterinary school? So yeah, I did. I had considered veterinary school, and and I really did like the economic side. Um, most of my research was in regards to cattle markets or, or beef product markets, and so uh, I I do. I kind of get off on those markets. That's that's a fun thing for me, and understanding how the price in tea in China might affect uh, the cattle here in New Mexico. But uh, it's it's very fun for me. Um, but, you know, every business has to evolve. And obviously, we don't sell cattle on the rail road anymore. We don't market them that way. And uh, as we see, we see trends in markets like farm to table or things like that. And, and you have to learn to adapt. And you have to, our, our range land isn't necessarily going to adapt, but the kind of cattle we raise there do. And uh, so we don't raise the same kind of cattle my grandfather did. And my daughter, most likely, if she chooses this life, won't raise the same kind of cattle I do. 
You know, it's funny because when I started to talk to you about and ask you about your education, you actually brought up your family history. And that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, your family history and ranching. So you had a grandfather who moved to New Mexico during the Depression when he was 14, right? What percentage of uh, his descendants would be your father, your parents' generation, and aunts and uncles, and then you and then your kids have kept that lifestyle and have stayed so all three of my grandfather's children, my father, my uncle, and my aunt, were all uh, family family operations. My uncle actually managed Singleton Ranches, which is based here in New Mexico, but it's one of the top five uh, in landmass ranching operations in the United States. They have quite a bit of holdings in California and here in New Mexico, and uh, so we've we've kind of done it at all levels, but uh, but definitely, you know, ninety six percent of of ranching here in this state is family ranching. And, and, uh, so we're, my family's been a big part of that. So I heard one time that the, the biggest landowner or single landowning rancher in New Mexico was actually Ted Turner at some point. He's right up there. We have actually three of the top, well, maybe now four of the top landowners in the United States have property here in New Mexico. And one's Malone, uh, owns the bell ranch. Uh, Singleton family owns numerous ranches here in the state. Ted Turner, and uh, there's a uh, tobacco farmer out of Kentucky that owns quite a few. I can't remember his name right off the top of my head, but that's interesting. He's got his hands in tobacco on the east coast yep. and cattle on the west. What would you do if if uh, your one of your if none of your children decided they wanted to? Well, it it's definitely a decision that has long term consequences, right? So. So uh, <clears throat> no matter what size of an operation you run or what size of of a player you play at, uh, cows come first. That's just part of agriculture. Your crops come first, your cows come first. So you don't always get to make it to what you wanted to go to, you know. And so you're obviously out in out in rural areas, and and uh, you have to be comfortable in those settings and. And it's commitment. It's commitment not only by you, but by your family, and and everything you do revolves around agriculture. So, and and it's something that um, you know it really struck home. My wife and I, 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 we may have talked. You're not a big Yellowstone guy, right? No, I not not for any reason other than I just don't really have the time to watch a series like that. My wife and I were were late late comers to that, and we binged you know four seasons over the course of about a month this summer. And and you know one of the things that. You know, but you don't really know until you sit down and think about it is how much it really is a lifestyle. It is not something that most people, I gather, try out. It, you're either all in or all out. You're kind of all in or all out. It's it's pass-fail. Um, but And not for the faint of heart. Not for the faint of heart. And sacrifices have to be made. Like, say, cows come first, so sometimes you don't get to buy that new car. You have to buy feed or, or uh, if you want to grow the ranch – in terms of acres, then then you have to sacrifice in other areas and maybe not take that vacation that your wife wanted to take. And, and uh, you know, it's just one of those things. And I, and I think the greatest part of, of that ranching lifestyle is, is actually the people in it. I've got neighbors, well, I call them neighbors, but they might be 100 miles away, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I call them, you know, and they come running whenever I I need them, or vice versa. If they need me, I'll come running and give them a hand at at a drop of a hat. And uh, I think that's something we miss 
in society today, but it's pretty prevalent around uh, agriculture people and and the work ethic and and knowing sometimes 40 hours a week isn't going to get the job done. It's a very traditional culture. It is. It is. And now it's traditional in in the way we have to approach it. Um, But I want to tell you, it is a science and an art both because we have to, like say, we're not – we're not raising the same kind of cattle in the same way my granddad did. And so we institute, you know, from medical to feed to nutrition to range stewardship, you know, all that's science-based. And then and then putting it all together on a specific piece of property, well, that becomes the art, you know. and, and uh, But we get to see it. I mean, uh, we uh, we have full grocery stores, right? And the meat case is usually full. COVID threw us a kink, but uh, but you got Americans out there raising great cattle uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, you mentioned, you talking about property. When I first kind of did my research on you, looked you up, when, when I Googled, the first thing Google showed me was what you have. It looks like it's between Riodoso and Socorro. Is that the one you own? Because I know you own one, you lease two other ranches. So that was one I leased for 23 years. So I was very fortunate. My family leased that ranch for 23 years. And it sold recently, and after, when it sold, I was able to purchase another ranch not too far away. So my the one I own currently is still in Lincoln County. It's between White Oaks and Ancho, New Mexico, and it's it's a great piece of land. It uh, ranges from 5,000 feet to 8,000 feet in elevation and pretty diverse, and and I'm, I'm real fortunate. I thank the gentleman family that sold it to me were looking for it to continue on in production and not just be a play pretty for a rich person and and uh so i was real fortunate to get that deal done and then i own another ranch that's in the uh north west corner of guadalupe county um between villa nueva and anton chico new mexico and that's a little north of i-40 but great people great neighbors up there a little different country but uh that ranch is 100% off grid, and uh, it's it's to be honest, it's kind of one of those places I go to get away from everybody <laughs> to get to get con- completely off the grid. Yeah. Now you know you did mention I my my mind shot somewhere, then it 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 went away. But I will go back to something we you and I did talk about um, the difference. You talked about going from 5,000 feet to to different elevations. You know. You have, and anybody who's seen the movie, uh, for example, well, if you saw, now I can't think of the name of it, but it was the two guys up in Wyoming, um, up in the in the mountains. And then you have flat, you know, in West Texas, you have, and in the panhandle, you got, you know, nothing but flat land. And so my understanding is at least some of your properties, some of your ranches encompass both. And tell me a little bit about the different type I'm assuming there's a seasonal part. I mean, in certain seasons, your cattle may be at the high in the mountains and maybe are in the lowlands, or is there a different type of cattle, a different type of t- – chat me up about that. Well, so it it, it depends totally on, on each ranch, but uh, uh, typically on that one at, in Lincoln County, the cattle are up at the higher elevations during the summer. I'll be bringing them out of there probably this next month. Um and they'll winter in in kind of a deserty kind of a country on the lower end of the elevation, but uh, the drier cows will do better on that on those forbs and that kind of grass. They're not lactating. They're not feeding a calf yet. 
So uh, they'll be there till spring, and then at spring I'll start migrating them back towards the And when you say elevation. move them, how are you moving them? We move everything horseback pretty much. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, you're out in the – you're building a camp or, you know? No, no, we don't build a camp, but we'll we'll start way before daylight, and yeah. sometimes the moon comes up before we get done, so – is, I, I can imagine there could be some long days. Actually, you know, I, I finally remember what I wanted to go back to. You were talking about you were talking about buying and selling. Um, is buying and selling large properties like that in any way similar to buying a home? Are you talking about a thirty-year mortgage? I mean, how does that? Yeah, so you know, with interest rates now, it's it can definitely be a thirty-year mortgage. Um, so it's a it's a giant commitment. Um, you know, it, it totally depends on the production value of that land, how many cattle you can run or how many acres to the cow, per se, is what we say. And, and also, is there any uh, ex, external income, whether it be hunting or or leases or conservation easements, whatever you want to talk about? You know, is that wind energy seems to be a big, big thing we see uh, in my part of the world now. Um you know, it all depends. It all goes to the bottom line. But uh, like say, uh, it's getting harder and harder to buy those pieces of property. Uh, one, cattle have a limited amount of money that you can in- expect in income. And and uh, two, ca- uh, land prices continue to go up, you know, and, and almost beyond agriculture's ability to pay for it now it's interesting when you start bringing up the side kind of the side businesses with the hunt, guiding hunts and, and and leasing out things like that guy I work with is about to retire and he's looking at about 600 acres in, in texas near the panhandle and he's he's not going to do anything but you know lead hunts um is does stuff like that come out of necessity is it basically supplemental income because you're kind of fixed on what you can do it is you know obviously your your probably heart desires to just uh work with your cattle all day but but you know business is business and and every ranch and every farm here in new mexico is a, usually a small family business and and so sometimes you just have to do outside work or extra income some way or another to make the the balance sheet back to the black so uh we uh <laughs> we Hunting is becoming a bigger and bigger thing, especially for some of these ranches. Uh, New Mexico has premier elk hunting these days, and and uh, you know, you it would be throwing money away if you didn't take advantage of it to some extent. Now, of of which the the biggest of your ranches would you consider in the grand scheme of things, small, medium, or large ranch? It's considered a a large. I, my operation is now. Now, how many people do you employ on I a full time basis? Full time basis, I I employ one one person myself and one person. And so uh, I would imagine you've got seasonal. Yeah, I I get some young guys and and some older guys. It seems like, uh, you know those those guys that are that are sixty and older, they're they're still around. They got a little time, and and to be honest, they're. Uh, lot less drama than than a lot of younger guys so uh i employ some of them and then i've got some young great young people that are raised on ranches but they need to maybe they need to spread their wings a little bit and get out from under dad's shadow and so i'll hire them particularly in the summer for branding and things like that so you know, that kind of leads me I'll, some one of the things i always come back to is when i first moved here to new mexico 
I, I knew a guy who was from Catron uh, County and his had done family had done some ranching and I would always ask him, well, what do you do on a ranch? Like what what you know what's your daily? And the first thing out of his mouth is always, well, you fix fence. That's the one thing that always comes up, but you got the, that and the branding and, you know, what, what would the average day, and, and again, I would imagine it might be different for different times of the year, pick any time of the year, what would an average day, the activities and, and chores be like on your ranch? Well, so let's just start right now. It's fall. It's typical shipping season on most ranches. Either you're, you're weaning the calves off your cows or you're shipping the yearling cattle off a of summer range. Um, so a lot of times it's early morning, and I mean, I'm, when I say early, I mean like 3 a.m. You're up and you're saddling your horse, and you're uh, you're getting ready to drive an hour or two to to wherever. If you're doing it on your ranch, you're getting ready to 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 drive to whatever pasture you're going to gather. And and cows and calves, it's the same thing as uh, you see in the John Wayne movie on cowboys. You know, you're burning daylight. Well, calves will be next to their mom when the sun comes up. You know, they're going to get that first drink of leche and and head out after that and split off. So you want to catch the cow and the calf together. And uh, so you're out there at a very early time, and and uh, I've spent a lot of t- hours waiting for uh, the sun to get, well, for even dusk to uh, dawn to show up and get just light enough to see so your horse didn't step in a hole. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, we we gather, and and then the of course once you get them to the to the corrals or the pasture that or place you're going to sort, you sort, and and that may take till mid morning. Um, if you're shipping, obviously uh, the quicker you get them across the scales, the more money you make because uh, every time they uh, urinate or uh, defecate, they're uh, they lose losing, weight. You're, they're losing weight and losing you money. So. I've heard things about people trying to trying to make the, the cattle drink a lot before they go to market. Oh so yeah, sell way more. They the problem is when just like anything, those things always catch up with you. You know, it's karma, give and take. I mean, it's like karma yeah. will get you in. So you you know, I I'm very fortunate. I've uh, had I think the same three buyers buy my calves for 25 years now, and uh, so pretty much I can pick up the phone and tell them what I have and. Yeah, and I sell them over the phone, and if he doesn't like them on the shipping day, he doesn't have to take them. But but a lot of times they don't even show up; they just send me a check. It's it's nice it's nice for uh, to, to to have some predictability like that. You know, I, I got to thinking it really does have to be kind of I would consider a lonely. I would think solitude might be a better or more or less I don't want to say judgmental, but more neutral term or, or description for it. You know, there's kind of a joke when, when we would road trip uh, as kids, you know, a lot of times we would drive. We we were in the Washington, D.C. area. We had cousins in Pittsburgh, and we would drive through the country to get there. And the the joke was my dad, we would pass a house, farmhouse or something that had nothing else around it. And he would always say out loud, who do their kids play with? You know, and that was kind of the old joke in the family. But it kind of makes me think, you know, if you do live that lifestyle and you talk about your closest neighbor might be 100 miles away. How do you meet your spouse? How do you meet friends? How do you how do you socialize? Well, we you you sometimes have to make it a point to to unwind, I should say. And and to be honest, I met my spouse uh, after a, I'd taken a horse to a horse sale and did pretty good with him. And I I won't lie to you, I went to the bar and had a few drinks, and I met my wife at the bar. We danced all night, and we've been happily married for 
18 years now. So, but. Well, I mean, that's definitely, you know, you're lucky to find somebody like that. It just, it just seems to me like that, that cr- would create um, obstacles to, you know, not just meeting a life partner, but to just meeting people and making friends. And, and I think that it, it might, do you think that it, some people might get out of that lifestyle or at least for a time being to. Oh, the, the problem is I, and no, I don't think people particularly get out of it because they're lonely. Uh, especially the ones that are raised there. It's, I mean, if, if your family connection is agriculture, then you're, you're pretty aware of, you know, there's going to be some solitude, but like I say, it's, it's the modern world. We, we pick up the phone and, and I have college buddies that I live a thousand miles away from, and, and we we maintain connection every week, you know. And so, well, it's easier now with social media, yeah. but I guess if you're off the grid, off the grid, I guess you don't get cell service. No, not not always, but, uh, you know, like say, there's not a lot of places in New Mexico that are particularly like that. I mean, it's yeah. still still modern, and, and we, we uh, you know, you, you – I met a lot of – great people in college at Texas Tech and and in grad school and and then of course as my job as president you know I I get to work with a lot of really great people and and you know we we attract each other so now yeah I just kind of had the thought you know you growing up in the in the ranching lifestyle like you did and going to school at Texas Tech which I would imagine obviously has an agricultural component to it but um was, would you say that was the, you're the first time in your life you really had an opportunity to be around people who are not part of that lifestyle? Yeah, so college, without any doubt, I probably should have gone to a junior college, to be honest, and kind of kind of uh, adapt myself to urban ways of thinking. But uh, but you know we we uh, we got through it. It's um, and I say we, my mom and dad and me and 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 I always maintained a job. You know, I worked for Perina Mills at night loading trucks, or I worked at the local feedlot and uh, feeding cattle all night and, and receiving and working cattle through the chute. And, uh, you know, I I learned just as much at those jobs as I did in the college classroom. And so, you know, there's always opportunity for someone who, who wants to work. Right. So Now, the, the relationship between – I don't even know how to call it a relationship, but – ranching and rodeo are there people in your lifestyle who don't care for rodeo and have no interest in it or is it just kind of a given well no i don't particularly rodeo much um for two reasons it's it can be expensive and and if you're going to be competitive you're on the road rodeoing um now doesn't mean i dislike rodeo at all i think rodeo is one of the greatest things because in our animal husbandry practices to be efficient with a rope and to be a great horseman and, and all that, it's highly important. And I, it, those are skills that sometimes you can only learn through the rodeo arena. And so I think they go hand in hand, you know, cutting horses are the same way or, or, uh, team pinnings and stuff. Now what's happened over the last 20 years, you know, we see a lot more ranch rodeos that are team sports. Um, and so there's always the big national one in in Amarillo. The Working Ranch Cowboys Association has one, and and uh, no, that's that's the same thing. Those guys are are great at what they do, and then and to be honest, to be able to showcase it and provide entertainment for the public and show them what we do on a daily basis, it's all great. 
I've always maintained that I just I I simply don't know enough about it to say that I have a real definite opinion. I can say that it it makes me a little uncomfortable, not my thing. Um, but I've also heard the other. So this is the way I look at it. If you have to do such activities to to work on a, as a, a part of a working ranch, then so be it. That's what you have to do to bring food to our table. But do you have to make sport out of it? On the other hand, I've heard people say that rodeo animals are so damn expensive. They are the most well taken care of um, things. And, and so the only thing I can say is, at the end of the day, if the horse or that bronc or that 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 bull wanted you on it, he wouldn't be bucking. Right. But you know, at the end of the day, I think I also did tell you. You know, our one of the responsibilities that my department has is we always provide security for the Southern New Mexico State Fair and Rodeo. You know what my background is and where I'm from. I don't know why. But And I don't do it anymore because I simply can't spend that much time on my feet. But I used to always sign up Friday and Saturday night to work the rodeo and concert. And the, the rodeo arena is right here and the concert's on their side. And for some reason, I just, I mean, I can't explain why. I just really enjoyed being there. There was something about that atmosphere and the people were so friendly. Um, there, there was something about it. I still to this day would not go to one on purpose. But being there was a neat experience. And it was very... I don't know if the term welcoming is everybody was so damn nice. Maybe it's because they're happy to be at the rodeo. I don't, you know, um, I just, I, I, I think that you can't really talk about cowboying and, and, and cattle ranching without rodeo, but I do want to touch on some stuff because I did ask you about some of the, the challenges that you, you face um, and things like, you know, land use and water. Um, you actually brought something up that I had forgotten about. You'd talk about the wind turbines and wind energy and right here, because I, I 25 starts right here. The split starts right here south of Las Cruces and goes north. It seems like certain times of the year, all damn day, every day, I see a turbine on a big, on a wide load with a pilot car, and, and they're headed up to your neck of the woods. How do, how do wind turbines affect the land that you use and how, how you run your business? Well, I, you know, that to some extent, some of that's to be seen. Because, you know, right, I live there at Corona, New Mexico, on the north end of Lincoln County, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're going to build the largest wind energy farm in the United States right there before it's all said and done. And so there's already a significant number of turbines up and, and I think hundreds more to go up. Um, it's definitely changed our little town. You know, we're a town of a village of... of you know, 150, 200 people. And, and so when, when the construction crews come in, we definitely have 500 new, new people in town and it's maxed out our water system and our electric system and our phone system. But past that, you know, those turbines are not quiet. I mean, it's like standing next to the railroad track Uh, and hearing the train come by, you know, it's, they're not quiet. They're loud. They've got a big bright red light on the top at night, you know, that flashes. And and uh, we, I think it's still odd that that we, you know, we see the, the impacts they have on birds and this and that. But obviously land use, you're, you've got a whole new set of roads out through the pastures to check on each turbine and, and, thousands of people coming and going right now and and miles and miles and miles of electric line both above ground and underground and you know it's it's 
I, I wish that energy I knew was staying in the in New Mexico. I guess I'd feel a little better about it. But to think that it's going to other states that have just as much wind or just as much as rural property and wouldn't require the miles and miles of, of line, I think I'd have a better attitude about it. But, uh, you know, it, but at the same time, it, when we talk about making the balance sheet black, you know, if a wind energy company came up to me and said, hey, you've got 2,000 acres over here of private property and we're thinking it would be ideal for, for a wind turbine, I would I would have to listen to it. Are you talking about selling or leasing? Well, selling, no, leasing the property for okay. the wind energy. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I was kind of wondering about what the benefit might be to you. Now, um, it's interesting you brought that up. You talk about, you know, hoping that the energy stays in New Mexico as opposed to some other places who, you know, have just as much wind, but they don't have the turbines. Where are those decisions made? Is that a state or a federal? Or is New Mexico trying to bring in wind turbines or is that some sort of federal regulation? No, New Mexico has been bring, trying to bring them in for, okay. for a long time. And, it, and it, for a good reason, right? New Mexico has an economy that's based on tourism, agriculture, and oil. And uh, to bring in another another source of full-time revenue, you know, it makes sense. And, you know, whether anybody likes it or not, I think that when the big three auto companies say that by 2030 or 2035, a certain large percentage of their automobiles are all going to be electric or at least hybrid, I think kind of the handwriting's on the wall as much as we would love to. And, and we just, I mean, we do have a big uh, surplus now from from oil and natural gas this year. In our budget, it's not always. I mean, the future is not fossil fuels. Period. Whether you you like it, I like it. It, it just is what it is. And you know, if if we can be out on the front end of that thing, hey, it could it could benefit us. Yeah, you know, you know I my I think uh, I think uh, every rancher and and person in New Mexico, even citizens, you know, you have to live in the in the century you're born, right? And so here we are. We're we're we got to deal with it the best we can, and and we'll. Uh, Hopefully, we'll come together and, and kind of make it right on all fronts. We'll figure it out. Bob, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, to say that people from your background uh, have a worldview that's probably 180 degrees from somebody who would identify themselves as an environmentalist would probably be a big understatement. However, I'm thinking I maybe touch on some of the issues you guys have where you're butting heads. But at the same time, I think at the end of the day, you as a cattle rancher and using the land to make your living and raise cattle would probably benefit from – there's probably more commonalities than, than you might think. I, I think there is. I think I think it's easy to classify agriculture as – it's almost a class warfare as, as like you would Monsanto or, or some of the big corporations and – and although they're agriculture, they're not the ones out here on the land. You know, it's it's the mom and pops and the and the kid with the 4-H pig, and and uh, you know we have uh, numerous state agencies. Those guys are out there helping us. You know, we got soil and water conservation districts and and Asakia associations, and and you'd be surprised who all's involved in agriculture. And I mean, not just the eating. But I mean, in production agriculture here in this state, and so, you know, as we move forward, we have the practical knowledge of what 
I guess we have a practical definition maybe of what conservation is. And then we have people that maybe don't have the practical experience trying to dictate what the term conservation is. And I, you know, and, and we learn every year. I mean, I make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I've made mistakes and I've, I've seen the scar on the land for five, six, seven years trying to get that healed because I made a stupid management mistake, right? And, and so like the fires in northern New Mexico this summer and, and you see that, that was a, a mistake by the Forest Service, but are they going to still be on the land to see that scar for the next generation, you know? And, and no, that... You guys got hit hard in Lincoln County this past year. Yeah, we got hit I mean, hard. Rio Doso got a lot closer to Rio Doso than I think it's been since I can remember. I want to say there was 150 separate wildfires in the state of New Mexico this year and thousands and thousands of acres. And obviously the, the two biggest in state history happened on the same summer, you know, and... And, and I, you can, you can say, let's say people are blaming that on hot climate change. And I, I think, yeah, maybe we've gone through a long, long dry spell and we don't know exactly what the cause is. Right. But what we do know is that we're dealing with less water on a year to year basis. And we make management changes every year uh, based on those conditions. But we also change our practices. We're there. We're working on it. We're doing it every day. And and to say, I think climate change is a way for somebody to say, to get out of saying, I made a mistake, right? Because they just say, oh, the climate's changed and that's why this happened. No, is a stupid Forest Service person. And I don't mean that. I Forgive me, <laughs> Forest Service people. I know a lot of good ones. But somebody lit that match and started that fire yeah. on a windy day. Right in 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 the in a drought, yeah. And boom, I mean your consequences. Co- I mean the action caused consequences that were huge. Well, I would think though at the end of the day, we all have. And I I I don't mean to cut you off, but I mean we all have. I and I like to say doesn't matter what section you're at. You're you have habitat responsibility, right? Right. And so you're it's your job to be the steward of that land, whether. I do it as a cattle rancher, whether the Forest Service does it as a forest ranger, whether, uh, you know, the state engineer allocating water rights, he's got to steer the water. Um, At the end of the day, everybody benefits from clean air and clean water. Well, absolutely. And and to be honest, and we talked about it before when we're talking about 30-year mortgages, it's not to my advantage to abuse that land. I You know, even if I don't make it, I've got to resell that to pay that mortgage off. And and a scarred up ranch isn't going to do anybody any good or or bring top dollar. And so, you know, yes, it's financial. And then I get sweat, blood, and tears all into that soil too. And and uh, and and memories and family legacies and everything else. And and uh, I, you know, we're we're trying to take care of it the best we can. I promise. You know, before we go, because we're running. Kind of, kind of running up on the end of things. I do want to talk to you about, and again, I don't know if relationship is the right word, but the relationship between people like you who are raising cattle out on big, huge, thousand-acre, eight hundred-acre ranches versus factory farming. So you know, like say that I think factory farming is a is a niche to to 
criticize or classify people. I don't, you know, most most factory farms, if you look at it, they're they're actually started by families and they were just grew and grew and and they provide a lot of income for a lot of young people who are trying to get their start. Um, family farms, you know, it, it's it's that way of life and and that keeps us there. I mean, it, we. You know, and you you can read those articles about Fortune 500 companies, and they're looking for kids raised on agriculture environments because they know how to work, they know to how to be, um, to ride for the brand, so to speak, or be loyal to the company, and and they'll put in more hours than what they're paid for. You know, and and uh, and there's a reason. That's those kids are tough. Those they're smart. They're they're motivated, and they they know what the goal is, and and so. That's been probably keeping our best young people in agriculture has probably been part of the hardest job. I look at my family, you know, uh, I had a sister that started out in agriculture and now she's a medical doctor for UC Baylor. Um, and so, you know, she's she's done exceedingly well from that agriculture background. But I, I think if, if what I'm catching is correct, that the the factory farms – start off as family business, but then they do grow and they actually attract, they're a benefit to people who come from that background because it gives them jobs. Oh, and absolutely. You know, they're, they're integral in our, you know, in our, in our way of life, because to be honest, they're the markets for, they're, they're the markets that are the centralized location where things come through the, they provide uh, younger people with the opportunity to be in agriculture, even though the family farm may not have the income to justify them. Just like, look at me, I have one employee, you know, and, and so we, we, we cannot as an industry survive without the big boys. And, and to be honest, you know, in 20 years, maybe I'll be a big boy. You know, <laughs> you'll be a big boy. Is there is there a real quick though? Is there? Do you think there's a difference in? I hate to use the term, but is there? Do they leave a different footprint, if you will, uh, uh, environmentally? No, than, I than, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I I always I you know in my my experience is they're not usually as efficient as okay. a family farm, um, and so. So they they lose advantage there, and, and then of course a lot of times the regulations and stuff really hurt them in in regards to what they can and can't do employee wise. Um, but uh, you know, like I say, they're integral, and and I'm glad to agriculture. I'm for everybody in agriculture. I don't care size. One thing I want to touch on before we go, I was just thinking of this today. You actually brought up something about. Um, bringing horses or, or cattle over from Spain and the Mexicans bring it up, you know, here to what, what used to be Mexico is now the U.S. I was actually just thinking today about cattle seem to be, I'm not necessarily native to, but most often raised and used, beef is more prevalent in, in the Americas. Uh, I would imagine, I think there's some ranching, cattle ranching in, in Australia. Um, Livestock exists everywhere, obviously. You have places like the Indian subcontinent where the cow is sacred, and the people who eat meat, and a lot of people don't because the Hindus don't eat meat, uh, will not eat beef. Uh, and I know that in the Mediterranean, lamb is much more prevalent than it is here. 
and it's I think it is prevalent in India too. Have you had an opportunity, uh, maybe in college studying? Have you had an opportunity to to? I would imagine there's a field of study of comparative, uh, comparative raising of livestock around the world. Yeah. So, and and it's funny you bring that up. You know, I studied population genetics in animal science, and and so we look at genetics within a our traits within a, a group of animals, let's say the Angus breed. But but to be honest, we looked at breeds from all over the world, you know, and there's there's some 40 different breeds that come from Africa that were based on specific tribes raised certain types of cattle. Um, we look at uh, the traits of the Brahmin breeds and, and things like that and, and how do they contribute to where we are today, you know, the variety we have in genetics gives us the ability to adapt to our marginal lands, right? Because not every piece of it, not every acre in New Mexico is suitable for a plow, right? We can't grow a crop. We have to utilize that, that forage or those forbs by grazing animals, you know, and, and so, that's that's what gives us our variety is all the different breeds and all the different ways they were created um the the selection uh index is what we call it or selection pressures uh that turned them into what they are today those certain breeds and and you can see it in the different different breeds of dogs or whatever you know i mean it's the same it's the same population theory but uh it it's fun it's yeah it's you know we australia has different cattle than we do and they also have a different way that they produce beef you know our our beef is is uh desired across the world for its flavor because we we spend you know 80 days or 120 days somewhere in there uh finishing those cattle out on our grains from the midwest and and uh so we have a really great flavor and texture to our meat and and it's something that that can't be substituted for for other different countries. Can't do it. Have you had Burger King's Beyond Burger? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Patterson is a cattle rancher here in New Mexico. He's also the president of the Mexico Cattle Growers Association. He's been my guest today. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, before we go, I want I do want to fra- uh, thank my uh, friend Stacy. Give a shout out to her for getting me in touch with Lauren because, well, I just don't have those kind of connections to people in in, in the cattle ranching industry. So thank you, Stacy, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, pre- I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode as much as I interviewed uh, interviewing Mr. Patterson. Uh, Lauren, thank you for being my guest today. Thank you for having me, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week on the Square Peg Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.